not be driven by fear into an age of unreason. Oh my God, guys, listen up. I have an announcement to make. Did you guys know that I'm like the number one Google search last week? It could be the stuff of history, however, one way or the other. Okay, is Jessica Simpson here yet? And to those critics who are so pessimistic about our economy, I say, don't be economic girly man. Get along. Terror, horror, death. Film at 11. How many sides does a triangle have? Damn, four. There's no side. One. Last week on Earth. Last week on Earth. Last week on Earth. Last week on Earth. Hello, everybody. Brain Trust is good to be with you again. I hope you are all very well. Next week's podcast will have Thunder Round, Chris Carter at UK Brain Trust, the British Bureau of this podcast. I apologize yet again for not getting your great, weird stories in there, but you can read them all at UK Brain Trust on Twitter, and there will be a Twitter Answers as well. You can always follow at Last Week on Earth on Twitter. For quotes from all episodes of this podcast as combined, combined, compiled by the great Bridget Woodbury, who's also doing some wonderful things to help organize the resistance. So just, uh, it's been retweeted on the last week on Earth account, so just check that out, what she is up to. She's giving you emails of how you can get involved. Um, that's pretty sweet, as we have always been, that's why this is called the Brain Trust, is because... I'm the one doing most of the talking on the podcast, but we're all in this thing together and trying to put our brains together to, you know, trust that we will figure out a solution to this madness and to try to advance as a planet and as a consciousness. And on that topic of consciousness, we have a special episode today. I just flew to New York and I'm in actually in the car service heading back to the airport right now with my friend Roth. What's up, Roth? Going on? And my girlfriend Jacqueline. What up, guys? That's her debut on the podcast. Very exciting, you guys. You might even know that I have a girlfriend. So there's there's the news. Um, and uh, it's new. We, we decided last night when we were dating, but we we're kind of starting from like our. We started talking because we wanted to get the date away from her birthday. This is more detail than you need to know. Point is, um, we flew to New York because I was flown out here by these great people, John Brevard and. Auschlag Magnusdatter, which is a real name. And uh, they created a thing called One Series. It's a series of talks that they do. And this is a private talk. And I got um, special permission to record it and release it as this week's podcast. You're going to get the inside of a special talk. It was sold out. It was waitlisted. And then this big blizzard hit New York. And everybody was terrified. And so it snowed all day. And nobody came out really 14 people instead of the 100 plus it should have been and then the snow even stopped it before the talk and it didn't matter it was too late everybody was staying home and so it's an incredibly intimate talk of 14 people so you will hear a uh, much different vibe than what i expected but it was still very interesting it was the content was probably more in depth than it would have been because there was less of a crowd to entertain and um basically the one series is a series of talks about human consciousness John will get John who moderates the talk with me. We'll get into explaining that in just a moment. Um, and I just wanted to give a quick plug to this amazing thing that they're doing. 
uh, Auschlag and John are building a community in Iceland where Auschlag is from. It's what kind of a name Auschlag Magnus daughter comes from. They don't name themselves with common last names. They use the father's first name and then literally just say daughter. So her dad's name was Magnus, so she's Magnus' daughter. And her brother's Magnus' son. Magnus' son. So weird. But I digress. So here's that about one hour and five minute talk. Um, you will hear me talk in depth about my speech problem that I had as a child and throughout my young life and how I overcame it in detail. I'll explain to you how to overcome any speech fear you might have, how to um, get over a fear of public speaking. We then talk a great deal about human consciousness and ego and the way that we see ourselves and our place in the world and a important way that I know I've touched on over the years in the podcast, but we get more in depth now than ever in this episode, in this talk about what shift we need, I believe, to make in the way we see ourselves and our own egos and our own selfishness um, that I think could help us all um, change the way we look at the world and at our lives and in a very empowering perspective, I think. And then we talk to the crowd. And I, as I like to do, oftentimes when I speak to crowds or entertain crowds, I like to get to know them. And we just chatted with them and tied it all into the topic at hand, seeing people from a broad range of life. The 14 people that were in attendance didn't talk to all of them, but we had a corporate tax lawyer. We had a clothing designer, I believe. We had a music producer. We had a um, hedge fund manager. And we had... Um, like other people. Lawyer. lawyer, I think I said that already, corporate tax lawyer. Um, and uh, we had some cool people. And the talk was very fun, very interesting. And I will bring that now to you, considering I'm out of things to say. And we just pulled up to Newark International Airport as I head to Phoenix right now for four nights of shows. Tonight, I'll be performing, if, you, if this podcast gets up and uploaded if, depending how fast Declan can process it, uh, the House of Comedy Thursday night, March 16th, and the next three nights after that, Friday through Sunday, March 17th through 19th, including special St. Patrick's Day shows tomorrow night on St. Patrick's Day. It's the best time to celebrate it. Um, and then I'm coming up soon to Sacramento and to Atlanta and headlining the Hollywood Improv. If you want to see me in L.A., if you're anywhere in Southern California, please drive out. Get tickets at BenGlebe.com for all of these. Hollywood Improv on March 25th, Saturday night, 8 p.m. I'll have a couple special guests. I'll be debuting my new hour in Los Angeles, my new hour of stuff. Um, and uh, just added dates in Tampa, Florida, and St. Louis I'm coming back to. Uh, those dates will be posted the next week or so. And one other city, I can't remember right now off the top of my head what it is. St. Denver, yes. Thank you, baby. Denver, Colorado as well. Um... So those dates are all being released. Check it out. You'll be able to get tickets from all of it on my website. Follow me on all the social medias, doing Instagram stories every day. Um, without further ado, I'll let John Brevard take it over with this private, intimate, snowed-in, one-series talk. Pew! That was a cool sound effect, right? I'd like to introduce you to Ben Gleek, who's an amazing comedian uh, and speaker. And he's also in that Ice Age movie as well. It's a strange picture in that movie. Um, but, uh, yeah, so this is part of the One series, which 
uh, it's a series of talks that we have on a monthly basis where we bring in different speakers talking primarily about the subject of human consciousness, uh, sustainability, uh, ecology, plant medicine, and um, I guess uh, growth through adversity. And um, one thing that we usually talk about as we enter into these talks is uh, Viktor Frankl, whose book Man's Search for Meaning is, is a book that uh, I often think about when I think about this conversation series because this is someone who's been through the most horrific experience. Uh, in his case, he was in Nazi Germany and in Auschwitz. And um, he survived by changing his meaning to what that circumstance and uh, he decided that's not the events or circumstances that shape your destiny but the perception that you have and the meaning that you place onto that circumstance so all these talks kind of center around uh, the notion of growth through adversity so um, Ben's gonna probably make you all laugh a little bit tonight and uh and why don't you tell us about your experiences and your growth that you've experienced through your personal adversity? Sure. Um, and introduce yourself, please. Hello. Hello, I'm Ben Glebe. Thank you all for coming out. Thank you for having me, John. Thank you to everybody here for having me. Also, I said it wrong again, I'm sure. It's, in my defense, it's a difficult Icelandic name. It's not on me, I don't think. Um, uh, Introduce myself. I don't know how to do that exactly. I was just saying hello. My name is Ben, but I don't, do you want me to say things that I do? What do you do, Ben? Um, I host a brain teaser game show on Game Show Network that is called Idiot Test. I also am the head writer and executive producer of it. And basically, the whole point of the show is to challenge people's brains and how they think and how they perceive information and, and give them these visual puzzles that kind of challenge the way you think and see how well you can be like a detective and think outside of the box within a within the moment. And I also do stand-up comedy. I'm a comedian. Um, and uh, I have a Showtime special airing right now that would be great if you watched On Demand because the more ratings I get, the more likely to buy a second special. So, so <laughs> just personally, it'd be nice if you guys would do that. So I do that. I'm on the Today Show with Kathy Lee and Hoda. On their guys tell all segment, um, telling telling all. They asked me to be on that segment for the last couple of years to be an expert on how men think. So they just basically, obviously, arbitrarily choose who they think. Yeah, I don't know. I don't really know how how men think. I, I I don't know. I mean, I guess they think stupidly a lot of the time, and in the box. And I try to un upend that a little bit, except on that segment where I just put on the hat of a you know typical beer drinking dude. Um, and, uh, as far as my adversity really was that, um, so now I'm a stand-up comedian and a game show host and I, you know, go on in front of a camera all the time and I, you know, can perform in front of what I know is going to be millions of people watching it or today's show's live and there's 4 million people a morning watching it. And I have gotten to perform not only with my own gigs to hundreds and thousands of people all the time, but I've opened on many stand-up tours for Dane Cook and Chelsea Handler, who are some of the biggest comedians alive. And so opening for them, I've gotten to perform. They hand me a microphone, I go and do 30 minutes in front of an arena, an NBA arena or an NHL arena of 12,000 people. 
sometimes in the round and you're just completely surrounded by people and it's just me and a microphone. And the adversity was that I wasn't even able to talk growing up um, a lot of my life. I had a fairly severe speech problem uh, that started showing its head around age like four, age five, and continued all the way until about age 22, really. On and off, and it was better in college, but where it was beyond a stutter, I had a stutter, but beyond that, it was like a disfluency where I couldn't even make sounds come out of my vocal cords. My, I would just lock up, and it was part physical problem, but for me, I knew more it was mental, and it was nerves. There was a great fear of public speaking, and I knew that um, I was just seeing it wrong. I was perceiving it incorrectly, but whatever it was, it took me forever to figure out how to think differently about it and be able to speak, but um, it was a real challenge because I always knew I wanted to be an entertainer and wanted to be a comedian, but I wasn't able to even make, you know, even say hello to somebody passing by in the hallway, so it makes it hard to do an hour of jokes. Um, and I, you know, eventually figured it out. What was that? Was there a moment where everything kind of switched? Now, this is kind of the core of what we talked about here is like, when I think that if you look behind every massively successful person in the world, it's almost like their upbringing was the opposite of that to some degree. They had some sort of, uh, I guess you call it unfortunate events, right? Where everything changed and then the backlash from that went the opposite direction. So, for example, for me, uh, I you may or not know this, I, I had a near-death experience. I, you don't know this. I died when I was 14. I was in a coma and had encephalitis and meningitis. And so I have no memory before the age of, of 14. Whoa. Um, so I was having 20 seizures a day and I had all these, they had to drill holes in my head to release pressure in my brain. Every day I'd go back to school and I wouldn't remember going to school the day before. So I'd forget everything. And I remember after that, just... You know, every day I would cry in my dad's car, just like, I can't remember going to school the day before. Like, I, you know, I weighed 70 pounds. This was, it was a, I was in a coma for about, a, what was that, three weeks or something? Uh, and I just felt stupid, right? So, the, every day I just would go to school, and then I leave school, I'd go to my tutor and relearn the information, and I'd sleep for three hours, and then wake up, and then get tutored again and go to school and I just got in this pattern of excessive work and you know audiobooks and stuff like that just trying to get my brain flowing a bit more so it was like that was the whiplash effect right. if I hadn't had that experience I probably would have just suffered mediocrity I think just flowing right mm -hmm. um, and so that is way more interesting by the way welcome to one series my guest today is John Brevard, and we're going to get... That is incredible. Man. So you're saying about how getting into that flow, like when you know that challenge, that's what makes you know how to, how to step out into like a different way of thinking, really, right? Yeah, I mean, but I, I kind of grew up in a family where I, I... It was an affluent family, and, you know, when you have that, that's the biggest challenge. I mean, if you look at any of the most successful people in the world, they always say, like, the biggest... The biggest challenge to success is, is just, you know, having too much, being spoiled, right? Because paradox of growth, right? Yeah, growth comes 
from pain. It's, it's a strange paradox, but like once you go through the suffering, it's just he who exalts himself shall be humbled and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. It's kind of like that. And once you get humbled and rebuild and go back, it just, it bounces back. So I guess my question it is a little long talking point for me, but my question was, was there a point where you said you couldn't speak and you had some speaking problems where you, it just tipped over the edge or was it a gradual thing for you? It was, it was, it was a series of, of, of moments, but basically it was just a realization that kept hitting me. It was an epiphany that kept hitting me in a different, slightly different way until I really was able to internalize it was. So I always, and you know, ever they say people's biggest fear is public speaking and um, it was mine too. I used to have to tell teachers and like even like a 15 person discussion group, like, please never call on me. I can't talk. If you call on me, I won't be able to speak. Um, and I was in speech therapy. I'd go to speech pathologists a lot on and off throughout my childhood. And they would always try to teach you these physical tricks, how to open your vocal cords, how to relax. And I knew it was never that. I knew it was something psychological that I was interpreting incorrectly. And one day I was in speech class or speech therapy and the pathologist had me read something. It took me forever to get through this passage. And at the end she says, I kind of was observing you read. What was it that you read? Tell me, summarize what you read. And I'm like, I don't know what I read. And she's like, why? I said, because I'm, I wanted to sound great. I wanted it to sound perfect. I wanted it to come off perfectly. So I was so focused on the delivery. And she said, that word you use is a lot perfect. You want to be perfect. You want to come off perfect. It's a lot about the appearance and the perception of how you're speaking instead of what you're saying. And that was a big light bulb that went off for me and I realized, oh shit, my ego is out of control here. I was misperceiving my role as somebody talking, as somebody being called on. And I think so many times when people are afraid to speak publicly, that's what they think. Their problem is that they think they're so important. They think they're the center of the world. And when they get called on, oh my God, now's the most important time and all eyes are on me and I better deliver and people are judging me and you're all looking at me and wondering, is this going to be good? Is he going to have something valuable to say? Is it going to come off well? Is it going to... And I realized in like many categories along with that, the exact opposite is true. As is true with so many different things in life. We can maybe get into that later, but in fact, people have very low expectations in life, generally speaking. If they're not the one talking, they're glad they're not the one talking. They're just happy somebody else has the stage. They're not expecting Martin Luther King Jr. up there to be some grand orator and give some memorable speech that'll last forever. They're just, if they're listening at all and not on their phones, they're just listening for the content. They're hoping to get maybe a nugget or two of useful information they can take away from it. They're not worried about the way you're presenting it. And then, so that was a huge shift. It's not about me. It's not about the person speaking. It's not about, you're just there as another cog in the machine. You're there just as another delivery mechanism to get a, a service across, a point across. No better or worse, no more important than anybody working as a secretary in an office or working as a physical therapist or serving fries at McDonald's. They're all of exact importance. Really, if you had to describe importance, someone serving fries at McDonald's is more important, right? Because they're feeding people. You die without food. You don't die without some jokes. 
But you could also die with too much of that food. That is another good point. <laughs> Don't eat it for 30 days in a row. That's been made very clear by documentaries in the past. You could. But the point being, if that's in our that's structures, I know you guys are working to upend, but you know, obviously our fast food industry has big problems, but it does at least keep you alive. Generally, it might kill you long term, but you need food. And if that's, that's one of the cheap ways we get food these days. But so I just realized that that was a big paradigm shift for me. I realized just get over yourself. You're not that important. So you don't, you won't like my butt selfies on Instagram? Yeah, no, I don't like your butt selfies at all. I don't, I don't like hearing that phrase. I wish you didn't say that. I'd like you to take it back. Can you take it back? I, I, I don't know. I? <laughs> it might be too late. It's already a visual in our heads now. Um, I prefer duck lips to butt selfies, to be honest. I don't like that either. I mean, we're just obsessed with being ducks. We're like, whoever thought like a duck face is attractive? It's a quick tangent. Whoever saw a woman and thought, mm, cute, but she could look more like a duck. That would be nice. It's like we love being people, but mm, we could also be ducks. That would be great. You know, that, 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 that probably is why ten people out here have duck selfies on their Instagram. That's probably true. That's probably listen, listen. That's where our society is going. I think that's why we elected. A yes. president who is orange <laughs> with a tuft of duck hair on top of his head whose, whose name is Donald, I think. We want ducks leading us. And that's where we're going as a species. We're becoming ducks. That's fine. But um, He's the perfect example of the me generation. Like, oh me, God. me, me. I just want followers. I just want to be liked. I just want bigger crowds. It's, it's a perfect reflection of the masses if you really think about it. It's kind of Hugely. funny. And not just that, he's a perfect reflection of how you can manipulate people's truth when you don't have a sense of truth. When you don't have a sense of self, you can just go out there and say whatever you want and, pro- and project an image. And people say, well, he said it, so it's true because you don't, we don't have enough of a sense of self. I know we wanted to talk about that a little bit later, but just in general about how people don't have a sense of really what they are. They don't get to... to feel a sense of self from their good deeds, from the positive things that they do. So you end up feeling like a little bit of a shell. You feel small. Society does that intentionally so that power structures can manipulate you. When you feel like you don't have a sense of what is real and you don't get to take credit or expand your own healthy sense of ego from the things you do, then power structures like religions and governments and societies and reality TV stars, and now it's kind of all become one, can manipulate it very easily. And That's so, so they can sell you shit. What's that? That's so they can sell you shit. Yeah, so they can sell you shit. And they can, you know, like have more golden doorknobs and more, you know, fancy airplanes with the name Trump on the side of it because they want to lie and tell you they had a huge inauguration crowd. And those two like literally go hand in hand. Yeah. You almost can't have one without the other, without the ability to like influence the actual reality with the way people see it. But so with the speaking, with the public speaking, the other thing I realized is that not only do you have to get over yourself in the moment, and that's not any more important than any other person, but then just take a step further out. Take a step to the macro and realize, really you're getting nervous about the thing you're saying in front of a group of people on planet Earth? You're a speck on planet Earth. You're one of eight billion people and one of trillions and trillions of organisms on that planet, all living, all of arguably equal value, and then you take a step further back so then even on Earth, you realize all the problems people have and the famine and the hunger and people battling serious disease. Are you still nervous about the way you're saying your speech? 
you're getting your sentences out, but there's weird pauses. That's still an issue. And then you take a step further back and realize we're floating out of control in a vast, unknowable universe on a marble through outer space. And you're worried about on that spec, in that universe, your spec on the fucking spec. So people are worried if your sentence structure is right or if you inflect it up at the end of your sentence. Fuck you. Yeah. Get over yourself. You're lucky to be able to speak or communicate a thought or sign it or write it on a card and just move on. You're just there to lucky to play. You're just there lucky to play a role. I mean, I, I, I completely agree. I think that unhappiness comes from an obsession with self. Big like, time. Period. It's the, the, the most unhappy people are at any point in time where we're unhappy. It's like we're too stuck in our heads about ourselves and our story and our lives. And like it's it's of no real value but your own wasted thinking mind. Completely. And it's especially because, like you said with the butt selfies, right, we keep – this will be a theme today, butt selfie. Go to my Instagram. Hashtag butt selfie. Two teeth. Um, <laughs> a big part of it is because, exactly what touched on too, so yeah, maybe in a vacuum, in an ideal world, you know, the Jewish tr uh, concept of tzedakah being like the greatest form of charity is when you don't tell anybody you do it. And we're taught as a society, like, you should never even talk about your charity work. You, well, that might be good in a vacuum. You don't talk about the things that you do, the things that you the, the positive things that you do because, oh, it's better if you're, if you're not doing a char charitable act for yourself. It truly is selfless. Another word I dislike greatly. If you are, if you're truly are selfless, you can't even mention the thing you did. Well, we don't live in a vacuum anymore. We don't never did. We never, especially now. Everything's blasted out to the world instantly. So when we're living in a world of butt selfies and Instagram followers and likes, and that becomes the value, and we live in a keeping up with the Joneses world, if you only, if you do allow people and you actually create a virtue out of how many followers you have or how many likes you have, or you, you accept the fact that you post pictures of your, of your lunch or of yourself, how wasted I got last night, hashtag wasted, hashtag so wasted, hashtag vomit, hashtag butt selfie, whatever it might be. And we don't judge that. In fact, we want more of that. Like the coolest person is Kim Kardashian, who's not adding a great deal of substance to the conversation and to the world. We need to at least then shift and talk about our charity work. We should embrace in our selfishness, in the, the, the ego of the self, we need to include the good things we do and finally take ownership of that, take the power away from the power structures and take it into ourselves and say, start creating a culture of, oh, I'm going to tweet when I donate to charity. I'm going to tweet exactly how much I donate. I'm going to tweet that I volunteer time at this place because let's at least encourage that. Yeah. So we're encouraging people who are influencers to share the good deeds they do, and then at least that may become the keeping up with the Joneses. That may become the coveted behavior. Who's giving more? Who's giving more? I mean, if you want help and positivity to grow exponentially, that's the way you do it, is by encouraging people to, am to amplify that part of themselves, at least as much, or at least one-third of the shitty, selfish things that we do. Not even shitty, but just the the kind of vacuous, empty, selfish things that we do. So, and, that, and not only would it do that, would it help move the engine to exponentially grow it further, but also that is how you unleash, that's how you actually, I mean, take back the power from those power structures too, because you're saying, actually, maybe it's not true. Maybe the president doesn't get to decide what facts are. Maybe Fox News doesn't get to, or MSNBC doesn't get to, or any different place that's telling me how to think, or religions don't get to. 
but maybe I can actually realize I have a smart brain too and I'm able to discern and think differently about the world and I can determine my facts from the reality that I see because I know that I can embrace the good and the bad, the dark and the light of it. And I think that really helps people shift the way that they see the world and it helps you get ownership over everything you experience. Well, you talk about a lot about ego in your talks and whatnot. First off, um, how do you guys define ego? Is my question. Can I get one, at least one definition from one of you guys as to what ego is? Bueller. Bueller. What's ego? How do you define it? We will fucking wait as long as it takes. <laughs> yeah. Selfishness. In what way? What does selfishness mean to you? Self-obsession, um, interest in yourself, other others. Hmm. Uh, well, how would you define it? Um, I think maybe the way you perceive your own self. And you? Sense of self. And you? The, the fall from grace from the Garden of Eden. You became self-conscious. Right. For me, uh, I would say attachment form, whether it be physical form, material forms, or thought forms. And I think that that's the same thing that everybody said. It's, right? It's well, an attachment to, so whether it's a thought form, a material form, or a physical form, it's just an attachment to it, a mental or emotional attachment to that form. True. And I think half of those answers, I, mean, I think all of those answers, that is true. It's attachment to form everybody's answer. But I still think there's two categories in those answers of the way people are interpreting the concept of ego. And that is half of them were just about, oh, it's your sense of self. But then half of them were these more traditional ideas of, oh, it's, it's falling from grace from the Garden of Eden. And that's when your ego starts. And yours was that, oh, it's when you're, you're self-obsessed. And yes, that's what we've come to understand as ego. But the problem with that is that that, again, creates the most, to me, unfortunate and unnecessary idea of how we perceive ourselves is that we think when we have a thought about ourselves that it's bad. And that's a real tragedy in my eyes because I agree with you that we should not be overly attached to ourselves. And we should definitely realize that we're part of some big cosmic experience that we don't understand and we certainly are not an outsized part of but we also are these individual people and we do experience the world through our own lens and if we can never think that the thoughts that we have that come back into ourselves are good if we can never think that when we think and come from a place of me doing this thing is a bad if we always think that's bad and that should be pushed down only when i'm doing good good for others outwardly and not even taking credit for it or mentioning it that that is the only way I can ever be good. So whenever I have a thought that comes to myself, that's a negative thing. It just disempowers. You see how it disempowers the very essence of who you are. So yes, you shouldn't overly identify with only your own self. But when you do, you should be able to at least have that essence be both good and bad. It shouldn't only be a fall from grace. That's that's was created by religious power structures to make people think that they do not that they should never 
feel powerful, right? If Jesus is supposed to be God's son, but then also we're all God's children, this not essentially just say we're all the same, even Jesus and us, we all have the same essence, the same source energy in all of us. And I really can't speak on that too much because I'm Jewish. But the point is, if you can't ever take a positive feeling from the things that you identify yourself with, then you can be manipulated down any road because you feel like, oh, they must know better. Because any thought that I have, it's that I again, it's that pesky I sneaking up. So I don't know. I don't know as well as they know. I, they must know better, so maybe I should shut up and do what I'm told. And that's not right. We need to be able to feel both. So that's why I hate the word selfish being seen as a negative. And I hate the term selfless being seen as positive. Because if you think about it, there is no such thing as a selfless act doesn't make any sense logically how could you ever do something without yourself every time you do something good or bad it's an act from yourself but we're taught oh well it's a good thing that's not even from us that's a selfless thing i didn't do it some other did it because it's not myself that did it but no it's bullshit it was you that did it so and selfish just means from yourself so Selfish can be a good act, a positive, benevolent, charitable good act, or a, a, a benevolent, selfish act, or a shitty, self-absorbed, selfish act. But we need to realize that both can be the self, and both can be both are selfish because it comes from you. So the way, like, I kind of blend the way I make sense of those two different concepts, like you said, of not attaching to yourself, which I think is very important, not overly valuing your own ego, like, like you said, and being self-obsessed, is that it's both realities. We are part of this big cosmic experience and part of this big world that we don't know exactly what it is, but we know we're part of it. And we also have these individual forms. I always see it as we are all clumps in the cosmic oatmeal. We're connected. There's no space between you and I and anybody in this room and anybody on Earth because the molecules that make up the air are the exact same building blocks of life and molecules and, and chemical components that make up our own cells. So we're just like clumps in oatmeal. We have our own shape and our own form, but we flow through that oatmeal. We're exactly part of that same bowl. So you have both, but you need to be able to, since we interpret through our brains, which are in our own cells, you can't ignore that and think that's some bad thing whenever you indulge it, it's some negative poison. That's so unhealthy. I have just a little point on it. So what I think is really interesting is that one of the largest living organisms on on land is uh, an aspen grove. And it, it's kind of analogous to what you were saying. It's like the roots, right? You have all these trees that are fatter and thinner and higher and shorter. And on the outside, it all seems to be a different system. But then under the surface, it's just one huge root ball. And it's it's perfect example of who we are. Right? It's like we all think that we're so different and that, that perception of duality is what causes conflict at every scale. Right. You are Jewish and therefore you are black or white or you are a Republican, I'm a Democrat. Are, we must it, hate each other. Exactly. It's it's those things that separate us uh, end up being the things that divide us and make us ultimately weaker 
and, and every time those united as one. Hundred percent. Ever that's why one series is such a great name, it's such a great concept, and what you guys are trying to do is such a great way to just think differently about societies, about towns, about structures, about how we live, about how we can interact with the world around us, because it's just bullshit. Every time that we're divided into opposing thoughts or opposing sides, it's literally done every time I can think of. Because some selfish asshole on the top wants to keep other people powerless so that he can be richer and be more successful for himself and keep more gold for himself. Every time. I mean, think. Of, can you explain to me any possible reason why a political party is necessary when we're so fractured that we have a platform on each side that even if you, you, it just stymies individual thought, stymies positive thought, progressive thought, evolutionarily based thought, Instead, it's, oh, if you have one issue where you actually kind of agree with the other side, you can't because we have a Republican Party platform and a Democratic Party platform and you're either with us or against us. Why are we on opposing sides? That works great for a pickup basketball game. It doesn't work great for a country or for a planet. It should be like student government in high schools, Ron. You're all just sitting around a table voting, do we want blue fucking blow pops or raspberry blow pops? You just vote on whatever the best choice is, not like, well, my whole team of Republican student council people want blue, so I guess I can't go for raspberry. It's bananas. It seems like it's all decaying, though, right? It's like in technology, everything's being disrupted, right? Like we're going to get to a point where there's going to have to be universal income for everybody because every industry is being disrupted except for government. Right, like it's been the same for way too long, but it seems like right now we're going through a point where it's just collapsing upon itself, and and government that, ain't doing too great at the moment either. What? I mean, that's I guess what a big benefit, a big thing that Trump supporters think is the benefit of Trump. They acknowledge privately that he's ridiculous and says ridiculous things, but they think he's the only person with an ego so blind, with an ego so misguided that he's willing to tear the whole fucking thing down and restart because he just doesn't care about any of the traditional structures. And that in some way is a benefit of Trump. If he wasn't every other day doing that with all of these like white nationalists and fucked up and racist things behind it, I'm all for someone coming in there and being like, I question the way that's been done for the 200 years or 250 years of our country. But you don't need to do it while also like espousing horrible things well, and surrounding yourself with horrible people. Well, now so much attention is, and we want to open this up to questions and thoughts from you all as well, because it's not just about talking heads here. But um, it's that's exactly what's happening, right? It's like you see, like ACLU, people are now being like, I'm donating every on a weekly basis or whatnot. So it's it's almost like a return to. Um, the village system, right? Where it's, it's everyone's getting involved and everyone sees what's happening more clearly and wants to help out or be engaged or uh, understand, right? As before, we were on autopilot. So it's like, it's like if right now what's, what's equivalent to what's happening is like me saying you have a disease and you're going to die next week or in a month or in a year, everything then changes, right? We all then change into... Uh, being more interested in understanding who we are. And that's the other interesting benefit, not to you know be giving Trump too many shout-outs, but benefit to what he's doing is that obviously all of this undercurrent exists in our country of these old-world ways of thinking, and you can never really ignore a problem for too long. It eventually bubbles to the top. 
So he's at least shining sunlight on our problems and he's making us confront them. And like you're saying, he's making people get active. He's making people wake up. So maybe it's in some crazy way exactly what we need to wake up. And we got it, so we may as well take that anyway. I agree. <laughs> I, I mean, I, what I would like to do is, if you are willing, if the audience, I know everybody's blizzard in in New York, is willing. We chose the wrong day. Really, I think God's, God's to blame. <laughs> he really hit us with some weather. We should do something about that. Yeah, that I'll, I'll put in a call after this. Yeah. We're all the same, man. Let's get a direct line. Yeah. Um, we, we met in Utah, Paramount, and, and you engaged with people uh, that were around you in a way that I've never really seen before. Uh, yeah, you want me to just talk to people in the crowd and see what everybody's up to? Yeah. What everybody's thinking? Yeah. Sure. How about this man right here? Just sat down. You got a snow cap on. What's your name, buddy? I'm Dan. Dan, how you doing, man? I'm good, how are you? Good, really good. What do you do with your time? What do you do for a living? Uh, I work in a advertising technology. Advertising and technology. Advertising in te- advertising well, for not, technology? More like the technology that goes behind advertising. Uh, so you're not writing the ads yourself. You're creating the, the tools people use. I'm... I'm, I'm one of the technologies that's like seeing whether you saw an ad on your phone and whether you bought something. Oh, you're creating the metrics yeah. that people know and determine what to charge for the next CPM. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. So, because advertising is, of course, all about that perception, right? It's all about exactly trying to control the narrative that people experience. So, thank you for being part of the problem. Uh, you're welcome. I'm <laughs> no, we need that. We need metrics. Those things create power as much as they create as much as they create problems, they also create power. Knowledge is power for sure. How, how do you do it? And do you think it's technology and influencing what people see is so much of the narrative right now, right? It's so much about fake news and about these stories and algorithms that are being manipulated to give people only what they want to see. Are, you, are there any ways in what you're doing that you can see ways that we can break that? Or is what you're doing encouraging that to be easier to segment people further? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, it's tough, right? Because when people are given a choice, like, do they, do they go, regardless of the technology, it's like, do they go to things that reinforce their own beliefs right. first? Or, right, you know, do they, are they open to reading things that contradict what they, what their perceptions are, what their beliefs might be? I mean, I think it's easier now to only come into contact with ideas that reinforce, like to, to serve up to people what they think they want to know. Um, so I think it, like the technology is making it, is probably exacerbating the problem. Um, but, you know, I, could it be part of the solution? Uh, you know, possibly. I mean, I think. How would you create a tool that could almost feed people stuff they don't want to see. I think you'd have to take away. It's almost less of a, less of like. I don't, I don't know. I think you'd have to take away some of the stuff that that is there, right? Like you'd have to purposefully re-engineer, um, 
like Facebook as an example, right? Like the whole reason Facebook works is that it resurfaces things, it reinforces like, oh, I liked X, Y, Z, so it's gonna serve me things that are more in line with the things that I liked, right? Like, uh, you know, not- Why did they make that jump? I never understood that. To me, that seemed like the end of like, what was such a democratic and open platform, Facebook specifically, and now Twitter does it too, where you could just get the feed of everybody that was somebody you were following, and then they just said, oh, you know what, we're just gonna reinforce the ones you've already been clicking on lately. Why did that shift happen? I mean, to, because it, I think what they found is that people come back more, right? Like, because it, it, if you took the politics out of it, right? Like, it's like, oh, I like, they know I like the stroke, so they're gonna serve me another band that's like, kind of like the strokes, so that other people who like the strokes also like. So it's just um, clicks, it's just immediately, it's always the dollar, the extra dollar is what makes you yeah. lose the beauty of like the potential of these platforms. The, yeah, the, like you lose that, that magic. Of can you stop it? How can you haven't stopped it yet? Can you stop I, this for us? You can, you're the technology guy, you have the tools. Create, put like a back-end worm in <laughs> that make people get fed stories they don't want to see under the guise of creating metrics. You can do it. You can be the resistance from the underground. You gonna do it? I'll try. Thank you very much. We've got a volunteer of the sports center to be a volunteer. Just not how volunteerism works, by the way. Are we starting anonymous? We're starting anonymous part two. Publicly anonymous. <laughs> we're gonna tell everybody what we're doing. Publicly anonymous. Publicly anonymous, that's the new group. Alright, I like that. Why not? I have no problem with that. How about our friend back there who had an interesting comment about about ego and Me? yeah, what do you do for the minute? Um, I'm a music producer. Music producer here in New York. Yeah, yeah, I just moved here. Where are you from? I'm from the UK. I'm from Bath. From Bath? Mm-hmm. Bath. Bath. <laughs> so beautiful. You think you're better than us? Always <laughs> <laughs> the way British people talk. It's just it's, you don't even try. Your accent it is better than us, really. It's what we were. Then Americans were like, I'm sick of sounding sophisticated. Forget Bob. We're going bath. I'm gonna take a bath. I'm gonna hit hard sounds all over the place. When you hear Americans speak, you secretly inside your head think, "Fuck this guy." <laughs> all the time. Of course you do. I knew it. There was that undercurrent there, and it's nothing to keep us separate. Accents. We gotta. We gotta fucking become one accent. That's the next project for one series. It's I think it's part of the resistance now too. Are you? Are you in? Yeah. Are you on board? No, nah, we're secretly obsessed with Americans. You are secretly obsessed. Yeah. Because we're like. We're like. The UK 2.0. We take when you guys started and improved upon the food and ruined other parts of the culture. And Certainly. <laughs> yeah, I like that a lot. So you are a music producer. What kind of music do you produce? Uh, all kinds, really. But, uh, That's the way to do it. Do a little bit of everything. Yeah. Not specialize. No, but I mean, I, I grew up on rock music, so I'm, I'm very into my rock and stuff. But. What do you do for fun? Do you have any hobbies and things you do with your, your uh, spare time and your passions? Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I like to work out, uh, I to, like, go out and stuff. Work out and go out? Work out and go out. Anything internal going on with you? <laughs> What's that? Wait, what do you mean? Anything internal, or is it all just working out, going out, eating out, what else do you do? I mean, uh, internal. Like, I, I, I like TV shows. You like TV shows? Yeah. What's your favorite show right now? Uh, I just watched Westworld. Westworld, yeah, it's a pretty good one. You should watch the original, the uh, Yule Brenner, Richard Benjamin one. It's a great movie. Yeah, I heard about that. It's pretty awesome. Westworld's a pretty good show. 
And it's really what we're saying, it's very related to that. It's like with the programming society kind of forced upon us, we really become robots of this way of thinking we don't, aren't able to control if we can break out of those paradigms and think differently about it. I'm sorry that I keep quoting Apple's slogan, but they got it pretty good. <laughs> really, like that's the power of advertising. Like you're saying, it's like advertising really does kind of boil down larger concepts into really excellent nuggets. It's also how Trump was so successful, right? It's like Hillary's trying to make all these like intellectual points, yeah. and Trump's like, we're going to make America great. Full stop. Build a wall. <laughs> we're going to build a wall. Okay, well, I'll talk about that in a second. Like, Trump like, also uses confusion a lot to get people, like a lot of hypnosis techniques, too. Same thing over. Same thing over and over again. But, like, you know, Apple's slogan, Think Different, is such a great, even though grammatically incorrect, it's such a great way to think out of the box, but boil that down. And the best motivational strategy ever you can't say it any more succinctly than Nike's just do it. That is truly the best way to get stuff done. But Trump, he like he uses these amazing two techniques, basically like a hypnosis, hypnotic repetition and intentional confusion in the way he talks, where you just feel like you're spun around after he speaks. Like he in his in his last campaign stuff, he opened his rally with this exact quote. He says, America is the greatest nation on earth. And we're gonna make it great again. <laughs> you just said it was the greatest. How are you gonna make it great? We're gonna make it great. It's gonna be so great. It's gonna be extra great. It's gonna be so great. You're gonna say, Donald, make it less great. Don't say I can't. It's too great. It's too great. Super califragilistic expialidocious great. That's how great it is. Like in the debates, right? Even when they made him talk policy, it was like confusing. Like Lester Holt says, like you say you're gonna make these jobs come back and force these companies to come back to America, but how are you gonna do it? They've already left. And he goes, by not letting them leave in the first place. <laughs> is that a fucking riddle? What does that mean? They already left. He's like, I will build a time machine, Lester. <laughs> I will go to 88 miles per hour. Take America to 88 miles an hour. It's simple. I got a guy in China, gives me a great deal on flux capacitors. It's gonna be great. And then like, he would all, he's like, Cognitive dissonance with this guy, it's incredible the way he confuses you. Like, every politician contradicts himself. That's not anything new, but I've never seen one like Trump who all of a sudden does it within the same sentence. And it just like throws you for a loop. All the time he'd be like, Look, I would never say that Hillary's not qualified, but she's not. <laughs> you just said you would never say that. He just broke the campaign promise one second later. That's like it's in the Guinness Book of World Records shit. And then the re repetition of make America great, build a wall. It's like all the Republicans wanted to build a wall. Talk about like being on the same side of the hour. The wall was the biggest divisive issue of the whole campaign, right? But really, are we that far apart on these issues? I don't think so. Hillary even used to be in favor of a border fence. How's that a different policy? She's saying we should still build a protection on the border, but we should let illegal immigrants peek in at America. Let them see what they cannot have. You know, how, how is that different? But even all the Republicans wanted an actual wall. But Trump just, he sells better, he markets better. He's always like, I'm going to build a beautiful wall. <laughs> it's going to be a beautiful wall. It's going to be a gorgeous wall. You want a wall? You want a wall? You're getting sleepy. You want a wall? Giving you a wall. It's like, it's like, fuck, I want a fucking wall. You just wake up wanting walls. But like, are we even that apart on these issues? They just get so polarized for ratings, for money. It's, I don't think it's bad to just want to curb illegal immigration as best we can, because you do have a country. And it's true when Trump says, 
you don't have a country if you don't have borders, you don't enforce your borders. Great. I do think people that are waiting legally to get in should get priority and precedence over those getting illegally. But it just gets put into these cartoonish narratives of he hates Mexicans and he, de he definitely feeds into it by calling them rapists and phrasing it in ways that is so polarizing and is racially tinged and is racist. But on the actual core of the issues, we all agree on most things. We do want to extreme vet people coming from other countries who might want to do us harm. No one disagrees with checking them carefully. Obama checked them very carefully. Hillary's plan was to extreme vet. But then Trump just throws in extra phrases to rile up the underbelly by saying, ratings. and no Muslims. Ratings. Ratings. It's all ratings. That's what he's genius at. Simple marketing, simple words, ratings. The guy's literally, are we surprised he's created alternative facts and has changed what even the concept of facts are? He comes from reality TV, which was when America jumped the shark from reality to reality television, which everyone knows it works anywhere near television. Reality TV is not real. They script it, they create the plot points, they just let them improvise the words. Basically, reality TV is curved enthusiasm. They just loosely improvise around a script. And that's what reality then becomes. But if we don't get, that needs to be the biggest fight of our civilization is against this fake news accusation, is against the actual fake news put out by Trump and, the, and his administration, is the concept of alternative facts. Because without facts, if we give up facts, it's amazing how easily, just this last year, we accepted the term, even Dan Rather saying, we now live in a post-truth era. Fuck that! Post-truth? Without truth, you literally have zero. You can't have morality without truth. You literally can't know a right and wrong if you don't know what the fuck happened. How are you going to say it's right or it's wrong if you don't even know if it is? Post-truth is pre-fascism. Yeah, it's right there. It's, it's fucking first step toward fascism. Post-truth. You didn't see that. You just shot a guy in the head. No, that's what you believe. I believe he had a headache and he, he wanted to jump. It's scary as shit. So what is that? How are you guys doing? How about you guys in the back? How are you doing back there? You two ladies, you doing good? Three ladies. Wow. <laughs> Way to pop back in and create a third. I thought that was an alternative fact in second two. I'm like, there's only two. What the fuck is that voice? Oh, three. Hello, third lady. Third lady in red. You're what? You're going right out. No, you just hop back into the conversation. You have to hold it a little bit now. You have to hold it. What is your story, third lady? Uh, in what way? Tell me your life story in six words or less. Well, um... Less. It's interesting the way I got invited here. It was very interesting. You already had 15 words. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did you get invited here? Come away. Lovely ladies here. My friend here. She invited me, and um, it was a very uh, timely and appropriate um, discussion that I enjoyed. It was? Why? How does this fit into what you've been thinking about in your life? It's just recently. And you're so, you stumbled upon this like kismet moment where all the stars align and it's exactly what you're like. I'm going to pee anyway. Forget it. <laughs> I'm just going to bounce out and take a bathroom break. <laughs> you do have to do what you got to do. It's a strong point. You want to go and come back? I would like you to think of your work philosophy in six words, your, your life story in six words so while you're peeing. Is that cool? I gave it to you in like 200 words. <laughs> yeah, that was not the task. <laughs> Six words. I want you. To, I want you, your life 
story in six words or less when you come back. And she's not coming back. <laughs> Other two ladies. Your friend's not going to meet you guys. She's probably going to just text you a couple minutes. Somehow my trick is like going backwards. Regressive. So what do you two ladies do for a living? I'm a journalist. Nice. For who? Uh, Newsweek Middle East. Newsweek Middle East. Wow, if a Newsweek Middle East know that. Who, who, is that, it's the same Newsweek as here? Yeah, it's just the Middle East edition. The publisher is different though. Oh, it is, who's the publisher? Um, it's, um, it's, actually, I don't know. You don't know? I forgot, I'm sorry. Who writes your checks? Who <laughs> yeah, the checks? They write the checks. Okay, good, you're getting checks from a mysterious person. <laughs> Wire transfers. Wire transfers, nice. You're public anonymous, I like that. Cool. And what, what's your beat? What do you cover? Um, I cover U.S. policy towards the Persian Gulf, but I mainly do a lot of reporting on Iran and Egypt. You report on Iran and Egypt? Mainly, yeah. Basically, U.S. policy towards those places is like aggressive. Yeah. Kind of angry. How, how do you think the... How do people in Iran interpret the uh, nuclear deal? I'm curious. Do they think it's a positive or think it's a negative? Um, it depends on who you talk to. I'd say the vast majority think it's positive, but if you, a lot of people are disappointed with the kind of uh, the speed of implementation, or just the speed with with which the economic benefits they thought would come with it, because it's been really slow. So when the sanctions all got lifted, it didn't immediately improve the economy that quickly. So it's already been what a year and a half, two years. They weren't lifted. Like American sanctions weren't lifted. Oh right, they were, so they were suspended. Right. Um, and so, and yeah, so a lot of foreign, like European companies, are still afraid to venture business there. Right, because Trump comes in, he's like, forget it, I'm gonna tear it up. Not just Trump. I actually don't think he'll. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't think he will go against agreement. But like, the threat, even the threat of it, though, can uh, scare off investors. They need they they need the U.S. Treasury Department to just um, like speak openly, like to openly support. Basically, say that we're not gonna we're not gonna fine you for doing um, business there, and Treasury hasn't done that. So that would be Republican or Democrat. Actually. Sure. I don't think it would be different. Um, but they're not gonna be able to say that under Trump's iron fist, right? I mean, they will. And then he'll yeah. tweet something that contradicts it, and then world markets don't know what to make of it. Yeah, I don't think they'd say that anyway. But, but yeah. And what do you do for fun? Any hobbies? I'm actually back at school right now, so hobbies are... So the journalism business is, is, is in fact dying because you're... No, no. You're back at school for what? Like a mid-career fellowship. It's a journalism fellowship. Oh, nice. That's cool. And what does your, your friend do over there? I am a designer. Designer of what? Fashion accessories. Fashion accessories, that's cool. What kind of stuff? Interesting. You guys have very disparate jobs. Yes. Yet you're together and you're friends. Yes. Yeah. That's a microcosm in the back of the room right there. What we have to do as a society is like, we have different thoughts and ideas, but does not mean we have to be on opposite sides. Yes. I like that. And what does the lady in red do? <laughs> is she back? She hiding? Do you have your six words? Come back. Come sit right here in the front. No. All right, fine. Do you have your six words? I really thought about it, and I couldn't come up with six words. 
Really? I wish I, wish I were that creative, that I could sum everything up in six words, but I really can't. What do you do for a living? I'm a lawyer. Ah. Uh, <laughs> Revenue, not your strong suit. She wrote a paper, though, that she has. <laughs> she has a 30-minute closing argument, she'd like to say. Uh, so I should have guessed you were a lawyer, because I asked you six words on top, you're like, well, it's very funny you should ask me. Already you're like at 18 words before you even said anything, but you were ramping up in a very elegant style. I enjoy that. What kind of law do you practice? Corporate tax. Corporate tax, also very exciting stuff. Yeah. <laughs> who are you, who, who are you, whose side are you on in that situation? Are you, uh, what kind of clients do you represent? Both sides. Both sides? Both sides. Those evading the tax laws and those trying to enforce them? Yeah, well. <laughs> well. <laughs> One side. <laughs> Question that you asked. No. <laughs> I thought it related to Trump's new plan. So it, it, it took a step forward. It, it was a deeper answer. So Trump's new plan with regards to what? To Corporate taxes. taxes. Yes. Wanting to lower them. In one way and then increase them in others. Yes. How does he want to increase them? There are um, tariffs and things. Yeah, import fees. Yeah. Import fees. True. He's really on both, again, talking on both sides of his mouth. I will make it easier for companies to come back. I will lower the corporate tax rate across the board. And then also, fuck you, I'm going to raise it. Both sides. Interesting. But you represent companies. I do. Who are trying to, what, fight off lawsuits from who? The IRS. From the IRS. And tax authorities around the world, yes. Damn. That's what corporations need, is to have more tax lenience. Paying zero tax is not enough to try to get negative tax rates. We would love it if, I would love if Apple could get a rebate. <laughs> I'd love if oil companies could get a little more subsidy. That would be nice. That's cool. Is it ever hard? Do you ever find yourself in like a moral conundrum? Well, I worked for the IRS for a few years, so I'm, I'm, I've done both sides. You a cop? You fucking cop? <laughs> you work for the IRS doing what? Doing the opposite. <laughs> And did you find that the IRS was, generally speaking, just trying to enforce? Like, was there any corruption on that end of it? Or any, like, murkiness on that end? Uh... <laughs> take that as a yes. <laughs> we'll take that as a strong old yes. <laughs> nice, interesting. That's cool. What are you for fun? Come to comedy shows. Oh, yeah? <laughs> are you going to come tonight to the Gotham? You guys should come. Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld. It's a pretty big one. Not to overshadow you or anything. No, he overshadows me. Seinfeld <laughs> overshadows me for sure. That's a pretty unique spotting. What's spot the deal out. with... <laughs> What's the deal with two sides and perception? <laughs> Interesting. Well, thank you guys for being here. How about you in the corner? What is your name? Joanna. Hello, Joanna. Hi. What do you do? You're in finance? Do what? Uh, Say again? At a hedge fund. At a hedge fund? And uh, you enjoy that work? How did you choose that? Um, kind of stumbled into it. You stumbled into work at a hedge fund? Yeah. Does not happen. That does not happen. <laughs> I've stumbled into a lot of shits and drunken nights. <laughs> you normally stumble into a career in finance. <laughs> what were the steps that, that led you there? It's curious. It's interesting to see people's journey. Um, I guess, I don't know, I think it just, um, it's a good way to learn. 
Do you think it's it's a good thing to be able to hedge bets in our economy, or is that sort of a, one of the tools that makes it very hard to have a real economy? If you're able to answer that objectively. <laughs> well, you're working a hedge fund, right? Right. So can you break down for us as simply as you can, like a sentence or so, what a hedge fund means? Um, you are managing risks. Right, so you're betting against, you're, you're, you're hedging the bet, essentially, right? But what does hedge mean? I'm not a huge gambler, but from my understanding, hedge means that if you're in... If you're making a bet for something to go a certain way or some, a certain profit to happen, a hedge fund is a way to say, well, we're going to protect it by kind of also having holdings on the opposite side or making bets on the opposite outcome. Is that a, sort of accurate? Somewhat. Okay. And that's one of the like, beginnings of the instruments that they say com has complicated our economic system so much that really led to like the crash. Is that we have all these like economic tools that aren't based in the success of a real economy, but they're just creating these ways to kind of gamble within the economy. Yes, but those aren't those were necessarily um, created by hedge funds. I'm not saying this is getting complicated. This is getting very complicated. <laughs> what do you do for fun? You like to get drunk? <laughs> you enjoy the work. What? Let me ask you a more simple question. What? What has this job? done to your perception of our country and our world? Has it influenced it in any way, good or bad? Uh, <laughs> you don't have to bark. It's not me. Oh, it was not you, okay. <laughs> um, I think when you go into finance, you realize that um, there's no loyalty in finance. That's very jarring. But I think, I mean, I think there are many people in my industry who um, are very self-serving, back to your, your uh, discussion about the self, mm -hmm. and, and not necessarily in a good way. Right. Um, Enter Bernie Madoff. Yeah. Big time. I like his name, though, Madoff. It's a pretty good name. <laughs> you made up a lot, right? <laughs> yeah, there's... there's no loyalty, I realize more and more in anything. It's like, and in some way, at least what I like about that is at least causes like questioning of, of the structures, right? Not having loyalty, you at least question like, do I need to stick on this party line or not? Because like, I always, even when it goes to like sports, even it goes to everything. Sports is just so many people's big, big obsession in our country or all over the world, really. And it's always about teams, right? It's this tribalism. We keep further subdividing. And it's fun if it's light and stays like a sport, but like, I always think it's so weird when it gets more serious. Like people, like I jump from being a Lakers fan to a Clippers fan. A couple of years, people are like, "You're a traitor! How dare you do that?" I'm like, "Are you fucking kidding? The actual players themselves don't have loyalty to their team. For one dollar more, they'll jump to another team after a career on one team. So I should have more loyalty than the guy than the guy who's on the team. What am I loyal to? The colors? Like, what is it?" My childhood and Lakers are the same. What's why do we hold on to like these old USA? Yeah. USA. Yeah, like loyalty at any scale is just like you know. What is the world if you took the lines off all the maps, right? Like if there were no countries, what would there be fight over? Yeah, but see, it's it's just such a hard line because 
I totally agree with you. There's too much, I think, nationalism throughout the country and too much tribalism. But at the same time, you do need loyalty to your family, you need loyalty to your loved ones, because that's the only way you can protect those you care about in this crazy world when things get out of control. So then it just expands one step outward, then it's your town, then it's your city, and then it's your country, and then what do you do? So there needs to be some like fine line between the two, because... What about just loyalty to life itself, to any being or any, yeah, you know, wanting to have happiness and health and success and well-being for all beings? That's exactly right. That's what we want to thrive for, and that's what we talk about in this series, is the oneness that's underneath it all, that is the connecting element that... That's why we're here, is to right. you know, see the oneness in the other. That's what love is, I think, is to... It's not egoic wanting or needing, or I need you, and it's just I, I want you to be happy and free and live a joyous life and to learn and to grow and to expand and to contribute. And as long as we could bring it back to that, maybe all this infighting with other countries or the other... The Mexicans, the Muslims, the Jewish, the whites, or the, it's, just, it's just nonsense. 100%. That's, that's such an interesting way to tie it back because that to me is the greatest thing that we misperceive. Is, so I think you need to have some sense of loyalty to those you care about and those you love, but only but within reason, only within the perspective of only because they're the ones closest so it's easier to care for them. But you can't ascribe a greater value to them. You can't ascribe a greater value to the person giving a speech. You certainly can't ascribe a greater value to a certain how, country. How, or many, certain how many people have you heard this story like, oh, I beat her because I love her? Right. Right? Like, I. Or the, or the person being beaten saying, you did it because he loves me. I'm no yeah. That's a weird way of showing right? it. That, that's not love. That's egoic wanting and exactly. needing and attachment. Attachment to form, physical form. It's and it's, 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 a, and it's describing like different more importance to one person's opinion than another. Saying, I'm the man in the house, so I decide how things go. It's for your best, but I decide. It's not equally valuing all people. So there's a difference between care and loyalty than there is to value and, 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 and putting more importance on a different life. So that's the biggest thing. It's like so lost. We always talk about like, as horrific as you know, 9-11 was, of course, here in New York City, it's, a, it's even more, hits closer to home than anything. It's like supposed to be the, the worst thing that ever happened to our country. It was horrific, and it was one of the worst things that ever happened to our country. But in response, we then went into Iraq under false pretenses. And nobody ever really mentions the fact that we killed hundreds of thousands of innocent Iraqi civilians in trying to make justice of this war. So we literally sweep under the rug and barely ever even mention it. Our news doesn't cover it. No one talks about the fact that, so because we had a tragedy happen to three to 4,000 people, hundreds of thousands should die. And not even be mentioned, that's putting more value on those lives than on ours. Personalization, it's, it becomes an ego. It, Stalin, this is a, a quote from Stalin actually, which is really interesting if you think about this from a scalar perspective. Stalin once said, if you kill one person, it's a tragedy. But if you kill 10 million, it's a statistic. Right. You know, like, why is it that, you know, it, this is a fact, this is not alternative fact, but uh, in terms of donations, there's been studies done that have said like, you could donate to Sicilia in Africa and you can have Sicilia have food for a year. 
And if you donate to this, this girl that's starving, you know, X, Y, Z, right? And then they say, there's another commercial that's like, there are 12 million people starving in Africa and Cecilia will get all the money. The 12 million won't get anything, right? It's because there's like an ego that personalizes the little girl, right? The little situations. Oh, this is my, you know. If there's not some personal connection, we can't value even the concept of humanity. It's yeah, so weird. If, if, if there, we walk outside and a car's messed up, like we're not gonna think twice, but if, if, if I say, oh, that's, if you're like, that's my car, all of a sudden, a there's a, now it's a tragedy, right? Mm -hmm. And that's exactly that. So a shift with that way we perceive that, realizing like, yeah, you can take care of those closest to you just because that's what's easiest and most likely you can successfully take care of. Personalized. But personalized, but you can't value it more. And that's what needs to shift. And so when you say a lot of that comes from egoic want to need, that's why I think it's so important that we allow into our ego some good and some light because if only, if, if we see the world every day through our ego, we have to start letting that ego breathe. Let that ego be also a positive force. Let that ego say, my ego doesn't just want a need for myself, my ego wants and needs for others as well. And then you can at least have this ego that we obviously can't avoid because we are pretty significantly shaped clumps in that oatmeal. It can do good and it can get strength from a collective unity and just knowing you're a part of helping this greater thing and being part of this greater thing. And it's so funny because it operates at different scales. Like if you have uh, a guy that's making, you know, $100,000, but he's living in a neighborhood where everybody's making $500,000, all of a sudden that, that, that perspective is shifted immediately. But if he's uh, making a million, you know, $5 million a year and he's living in a neighborhood of people living, making $15 million a year, all of a sudden he feels like a loser. Or if he's making $50 million a year, all his friends are billionaires. It's, it, it's all a matter of perspective, right? It's like, it's all scalar, it's all fractal, and that's what's pretty fascinating, I think. Yeah, it, it really is. You have to realize that there is, there, there's no way to ever accommodate for all the variables in human life. So you have to just realize that it's all humans. It's all the same. We have different experiences, and if you can just humble yourself enough to know that good and bad, I am who I am, and my community is what it is, and we can try to work to improve it, we can try to work to change things, but don't ever think that what you do is better or worse than anybody else. We can at least create an even playing field in our minds, which can then maybe eventually create an even playing field. Shakespeare once said, there's nothing neither good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. Mm-hmm. Oh. True that. That's why I tell audiences after a lot of my comedy shows. <laughs> I'm like, you might not have enjoyed it, but it's just that's in your mind. You could have been good. Does anyone have any questions for Ben? I know everybody's shy. And Thoughts, comments, anything? You could just yell at him, make fun of him, and I'll make mm -hmm. funny back. I could take funny. it. He could take it. Your dog is, is uh, shaking that one off. Yeah, yeah. She she got really upset about that one. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, yeah, right there. Describe yourself in six words or less. I actually was going to say that as my last comment to you. <laughs> I've asked people that for years because I think it's such a fucked up thing to make somebody try to do. And I've never tried to think of it myself, but let me try. Um, comedian, entertainer, storyteller, truth teller, 
sarcastic asshole. Was that six? Seven. Six. Fuck. Six. Drop asshole off. That's better. <laughs> was that, that was six, right? Was six. Well, my, my last question to you is going to be, what is your message to the world 7.5 billion people in six words or less? Get over yourself, bro, please. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. All right. It'll be six. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys, for coming out. Last week on Earth. Last week on Earth. This has been a production of Smodco Internet Radio. Sir, only at Smodcast.com.